Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Asian Americans. I am your host, Jerry Wan, and thank you so much for joining us for another episode where we share Asian American stories to help you、uh, get educated about our experiences, to inspire you to do great things in life, and to find community through our stories. Today, I am so excited,、uh, so excited to share this conversation that I had with Julia Ryu.、Uh, Julia is a talented, amazing artist. Uh, she is soon to be a Harvard grad.、Uh, she's graduating in just a couple weeks. You may have seen her on TikTok or on Instagram or just about anywhere on the internet earlier in the year when her rendition or her singing of her character in the play that she wrote called Shimcheong、uh, got viral.、Uh, it is the story of the Korean princess, the Disney Korean princess that. She wished, and I wished, and so many of us wished we had growing up, and so she made it happen. And so we'll、uh, hear her story of how she grew up、uh, in, in a household in the Midwest and, and had dreams of、uh, wanting to pursue a variety of different things, and how she found her passion in making this her career. And so,、um, as we continue to celebrate all of us in May through、uh, a variety of、uh, APAM, Asian Pacific American Heritage Month events, whether it is with your workplace. Or、uh, with friends in the community,、uh, let's keep celebrating each other. I know there's still a lot of challenging things out there from a COVID perspective and from so many other things that、um, uh, could bring us down. But、uh, while we can,、uh, I encourage you to share your story,、uh, find the courage to perhaps uh, speak, uh, share your story in whatever platform is、uh, accessible and、uh, meaningful to you. And so I am so excited, really,、uh, to share this story. Uh, best of luck to Julia as she graduates、um, and, and goes to New York really to pursue her dream of being a playwright and being a director and, and being an amazing, amazing human who、uh, has given us another opportunity to be proud of our heritage, of our culture, and more importantly, given、uh, us permission to、uh, write our own chapter in the next、uh, careers or write our own story in, in the chapters of our lives. And so,、uh, big thanks to Julia for making time for us. Um, and without further ado, here's my conversation with Julia Ryu. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Dear Asian Americans. And when I say welcome back, I'm actually saying that to Julia as well, because <laughs> unbeknownst to you, our amazing audience, this is our second time recording this episode because our interviewing software had a glitch last time. And so、um, an hour and some change of amazing conversation went poof. We tried to do everything <laughs> we could, but in all transparency, we're doing this again. Uh, but we're doing this again about a month later, and so hopefully we have new insights, new stories. And as the world has、uh, changed so much in the last month, I think we've forgotten a lot about what we talked about. And so this hopefully will be new and engaging and fresh perspectives、uh, with our guest. And so our guest today has, I think, in my opinion, been one of the most refreshing and inspiring stories of 2022. And I know we're early, but I'm just going to call it. It really has been. Julia Ryu is currently a student at Harvard University, but we all got to know her. On Instagram and on TikTok and in other places on the internet, when she decided to solve the problem that she saw of not having seen a Korean Disney princess, and she said, "I'm going to solve it. I'm going to write the script, and I'm just going to make it happen." And so she went viral. She's been everywhere, and we are so grateful that she has made time to talk to us here at the Asian Americans for the second time. And so with that. Uh, Julia, welcome back to the show. <laughs> Hi, thank you so much for having me, and, and thank you so much for that really kind introduction. 
super happy to be here. I, I am. You have no idea uh, how bad I felt about the first go around. Um, <laughs> we, we did everything uh, possible, but, you know, the Internet has its ways. And so how are you? It's been about a month or I guess it's been about two months before the videos went really viral. And you've been yeah. busy and you've been everywhere and you have now <laughs> taken your idea and it is now in the early stages of it becoming a reality. And so how are you feeling about everything? And we need a reminder, uh, listeners, too, you're still a student trying to graduate. How, <laughs> how is everything? Yeah. So, I mean, it's been it's been a little crazy. Actually, today I'm, I'm a little sick. You can hear the congestion <laughs> in my voice, but but things have been great. I'm re- definitely very busy. I graduate in about two months. Um, I have about four more weeks of class, which is really exciting. Um, and, and yeah, it's just been kind of a crazy, crazy year so far. Um, every, every week, something new and exciting happens. So, so yeah, it's been, it's been, it's so funny. It's only been a month since we last talked, but I do feel like so much has happened. <laughs> so much has, has happened or has had happened. Has <laughs> happened. Oh my goodness. I, I am flubbing my words as well. Um, <laughs> you know, this is, this year has been really a kind of a cool year for uh, Korean Americans from St. Louis between you and Michelle Lee. Yeah. Um, y'all, y'all have dominated our uh, phone screens with, <laughs> You know, just such amazing belief and happiness and optimism of what we can achieve. And, and, you know, at least in my case, having two really, really cool new role models for my daughter to look up to and say, hey, I can do whatever I want. And in in so many different fields that are so public, right? And so the media that we consume, and obviously we here on the show specifically share our stories for that reason. But what has that meant for you? Have you had a chance to process or have things just been so wild that you haven't had a chance to think about any of that yet? No, absolutely. I mean, it's it's just, it's such an exciting and crazy time, I think, with social media and with like all the different ways that that people whose voices previously were not heard can now kind of be heard. Anyone, you know, who has a phone or uh, access to social media, access to record videos, that kind of thing can get their story out there. Um, I actually had the chance to meet Michelle. She's incredible and amazing. And we had a really great discussion um, about a month ago as well. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's just, honestly, the biggest impact has just been seeing how many people can get excited about a single story. Um, it just shows us what, like how how important it is for our stories, I think, to be out there because there's really a need and, and a and an ask uh, right now, and and maybe there always has been, but I think right now for the first time it's something that's accessible and possible to to be able to share your story. So it's been really really exciting. So you go to Harvard, which for many immigrant parents, particularly Korean ones, is a goal. I don't want to say it is the goal for everybody, but <laughs> um, it certainly does check the box. We now know or we have known that you have chosen to go directly into the arts world after, which is a little bit of a pivot, which might confuse some folks. And, you know, I'm, I'm totally a proponent of do what you want, but do it in the best way with the opportunities that you have given where you've been in life. But let's roll back the tape a little bit and understand, you know, how Julia came to be. And so share with us the Ryu family story of, you know, coming to America and how did the Korean family land in St. Louis and how did you make your you know way east? Uh, so share with us your family story. Totally, totally. So my mom was born and raised in New York City, or not New York City, uh, in New York. She grew up in Armonk. And then um, my dad was 
born in Seoul, but moved to Ohio when he was around seven years old. Um, he grew up in Akron, Ohio, and then my parents met in New York. Um, but the way we got to St. Louis was that my my dad got a job at Wash U. Um, he is a spine surgeon, and so we moved over to Wash U, and, and I grew up there in St. Louis um, in an area called Ladue, and I went to a school called John Burroughs High School. Um, and I really liked it there. I really loved growing up there. But but yeah, I mean, if we roll it back even further, my grandpa was a chemist on my dad's side. Um, and then my mom's side, he my my grandpa worked in computers. And so um, they, they immigrated over before my mom was born. On my dad's side, he has two older sisters. And so... Um, First, my grandpa on my dad's side moved over, and then the rest of the family followed. Um, but, but yeah, I would say I I call myself a second and a half generation Korean because my parents were both raised here, but my dad was born in Seoul, and so sort of in that like second to third generation area. <laughs> I don't know if other folks do it, but we Koreans love the half generation uh, <laughs> designation because I, you know, I was born in Korea, I came here when I was eight, and so right. technically I'm an immigrant, but. <laughs> I, you know, spent the majority of my life here. And so it's interesting. Um, and I know that there's different cultures who count the first generation differently, whether you're first by coming here or you're first being born here. And so in any case, that's cool. Um, how was it growing up in St. Louis? Let's assume the audience doesn't really know uh, too much about the <laughs> demographics and sort of the schools that you uh, went to. But how was that? And how did that feed into what we know now as these students in her early 20s writing a whole play about the Korean stories that we never really heard growing up or learned about. Tell us about how your identity was formed in the early ages, no, earlier part of your life. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, so so I, I loved growing up in St. Louis. It's, I think, a really, really nice area to raise a family. Um, that being said, there were very few Koreans in the area. I remember when I was living there, I looked it up and I think I saw that there was 0.08% Korean population in St. Louis. And so growing up, I really didn't know that many other Korean people outside of my family. I had my cousins who lived in Tennessee and Connecticut, and Michigan, which are also not very Korean heavy populated places. And then my best friend is half Korean. And then there were a couple kids here and there that I knew sort of in passing, either from orchestra or that I had sort of family, distant family friends. But, but really growing up, I was kind of outside of Korean culture completely. Sometimes at home we would, we would eat, eat Korean food, or we'd go out to restaurants and um, but for the most part, we were a very Americanized household, and and we spoke only English at home um, since my parents don't speak Korean super well, and so I think I sort of grew up with this, with kind of a misunderstanding about what it meant to be Korean, because all the Koreans that I knew were third generation Koreans who grew up isolated from other Koreans, and so I sort of had this expectation that when I went to Korea for the first time, and or when I went to college and met all these other Koreans for the first time, that we would all be exactly the same just because the only Koreans I knew were exactly like me. They were all people from Missouri or, or Tennessee or, you know, these, these. Um, and so I remember just being so surprised when I actually did visit Korea for the first time and when I did go to college and, and meet other Korean Americans and how different they were from me. And I think a lot of that experience ended up uh, going into what is now the my current adaptation of, of Shimchung, which is about a girl who is trying to find her identity um, after growing up uh, in a place very far from home, but also having these memories of home. Um, so I think in, in many ways, the story really stemmed completely from that experience of growing up in St. Louis. When did you sort of decide that it was okay to be your own definition of Korean? Because I think that's a, a topic that we're constantly talking about, right? And I think Koreans from Korea being extremely homogeneous, but also 
if folks understand even our brief history in the last century, constantly being trying to be taken over by other people makes you really a tight knit circle. And so there's a lot of us and there's a lot of the world of expectations in the Korean culture. And I am ironically, or I guess, you know, tongue in cheek being generalizing myself here, <laughs> but there is what you're supposed to be or sort of, you know, a Korean is supposed to be X. And as we evolve into our own unique Korean American identity, whether you are Korean with both Korean parents, whether you're mixed race, whether you're adopted, different race, different genders and different identities, we are changing the narrative on what Korean means. And it's simply enough to say, I am Korean because I am Korean, not by anybody's definition of, are you a real Korean or are you <laughs> Korean enough? And, and when did that realization, has that realization happened for you yet? Totally. So it's so funny because I think it's it's definitely a journey that I'm still on today, although I would say I've come, come a lot further even now than I was like two, three, four months ago. Um, when I was growing up, when I was a little kid, I was so proud of being Korean. I was, I, I, I really thought of myself as like the, like the most Korean person because I was surrounded by people that weren't Korean. And so even though I didn't speak the language and didn't know about all the traditions, I thought I did. And I thought I knew everything. Um, and then of course, when you get older, you know, you begin to question these things. And I think the biggest actually realization or, 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 or fear that I was a fake Korean started really when I was in college, when I first came to college, met all these other Koreans who were so different from me. Um, and I remember I would often get asked if I was adopted or if I was, if I was half Korean, it was, I got some really interesting, um, when I, I remember my first week of college when we would all talk about our backgrounds, cause you know, I would say I'm from Missouri and, um, and, and, and I think, I've changed a lot kind of over the last couple of years trying to learn more and more about Korean culture, but that was when that kind of crisis began. And then while, even while I was writing Shimchung, actually, especially while I was writing Shimchung, that was when I had a kind of the second wave of crisis because I was really worried about the way that people would look at the story if they would say, oh, this is just a Americanized version of this ancient folktale. Um, this music is Western and the dialogue sounds Western. And just because you're putting on a Korean face and you're telling it with Korean characters doesn't mean that it's a Korean story. Um, and that was something that I had such a sort of crisis about that I actually gave up on writing the folktale at certain points. And there were like I tried to give up three different times on my senior thesis and it wasn't until I ultimately realized like because I am a Korean person um I mean first of all there's not one way to be Korean there's not one way to be American there's no way to be Korean American it's just every person has a unique experience and that and finally kind of coming to that realization made me realize that like whatever whatever story I tell will be a Korean American story because I am Korean American um and Ultimately, this is what I wrote my reflection paper on. I had to write a 20-page reflection, reflection paper about three weeks ago. Um, was that realizing that as long as I tell a story that's authentic to me and that is authentically my story, the story will be authentic. And if I try to do anything but that, if I try to make it sound what I conceive as more Korean or less, it it won't be as authentic if I just tell a story that as if I just tell a story that's true to me. Um, and so I think that was something I realized over the last even just recently, like even in 2022, just kind of seeing the reception and hearing all the people that have said, oh, this story is my story, searching for belonging. This is my story uh, to help me realize that 
oh, this is a Korean-American story. And I, it is just because I'm Korean-American. Now, that being said, I think I'm absolutely still on that journey. And, and, and it's something that I'm trying to learn more about every single day. And I'm still, you know, le- trying to learn how to speak the language better, learn more about the culture and everything that I can. Um, so I'm still, I'm still learning, but it's been a long journey. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing that. I, I think, unfortunately, based on a lot of the things that I was taught about my culture, my identity, and what I was supposed to think. And I was part of probably growing up in high school and college of the camp that were gatekeeping other Koreans from the experience, <laughs> right? And I don't know what, what the what the uh, KSA culture at Harvard is like in 2022, but 20 years ago at USC, it was, you know, bluntly, it was just a social club. We met to drink and we met to hang out and we weren't as open-minded or as open in general about other folks joining it. I think there was, we weren't exclusive, but I don't think we had my viewpoint on sort of my duty as somebody who was privileged enough to know culture and language and customs that maybe somebody who was, even if they were not adopted or not mixed race from places like Missouri, where the Korean American experience is very different because the friends that I hung out with were all primarily raised in super duper Korean American neighborhoods. And so we knew the music, we had the language, we had the food palette and everything. And so I I am so glad that you are going through that. And I am so glad that hopefully it just continues to get better generationally. I think obviously it changes, but yeah, because who, who gets to say who we can be? That's one of the big reasons, in my opinion, why America is in, you know, some of the situations that we're in, because people want to define what American isn't or is. And oftentimes when those definitions are made, we fall outside the circle. But what is not American about a girl who was born in St. Louis and goes to Harvard and wants to pursue a career in the arts? That's who's to say, right? And so you you had mentioned your father being a physician, your grandfather being a chemist, and as somebody whose father is also a physician, the pressures that I faced, uh, I'd love to learn yours, of the expectation of we expect you to all the way to just a nudge of like, hey, you know, your dad is one, maybe you should think about being one too. Was that a thing? You said your parents were a little (laughs) bit more, you know, more Americanized in their way of thinking based on, you know, they weren't first generation immigrants themselves. Did you have those pressures? And how did you balance that with your love of, you know, the the arts as we know it today? I I think it's really funny because I often I often get this question. People ask like, oh, how did your parents react when you told them you were going into the arts? (laughs) And I usually say, oh, well, you should have seen how they reacted when I told them I was switching into pre-med. Um, it's actually, I think I kind of have this kind of reverse story of a lot of people. I, I'm very, very lucky to have a family that's always really supported me, but, but mostly my parents were the ones who encouraged me to do the arts, um, from a young age. And my mom was the one who would, uh, encourage kind of all of us to just try everything. Um, we would just try everything. And if we had anything that we were interested in, she really, really encouraged us like with full force to go for it. And so I think starting, I started composing at a very, uh, young age, I was around I think maybe seven or eight and and songwriting a little bit later and writing musicals in high school and so I think it was I don't think it came as a surprise to anybody where I ultimately ended up but actually if anything I was putting tons of pressure on myself um and in 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 first year of college I remember when I when I when I met other Korean Americans for the first time and when I met sort of the Asian American community at Harvard 
I remember being very, very surprised in my first year of how, how few people uh, were interested in going into arts um, as a career. And I remember when I first uh, mentioned that I was planning to study theater and music, I started becoming very, very insecure about the way that people reacted. And I think this was linked to my desire to fit in with the other Korean Americans so badly. I just really wanted to be just like everybody else and and kind of prove to everyone. I had this like thing to prove with everyone that I was a real Korean. And so I actually... November of my first year here in college, I switched into pre-med out of the arts because I wanted to be able to say that I was pursuing a practical career. I wanted to be able to fit in with the other pre-med Asian kids. And and I also just was really not seeing that many other Asian students on campus doing theater. And so I felt like maybe this makes me a weirdo. Maybe this makes me someone who's trying to do something impractical. Um, and it took a while until like all the way through sophomore year, I was also, I was, I stayed pre-med and it, and I think I was very lucky to have my family to support me during that time where I was having a weekly crisis where I'd call my mom and say, I don't know what I'm doing in my life. Like, do I want to be pre-med? Do I want to do theater? And even just the other day, my freshman advisor emailed me a, a cartoon that I had drawn of myself standing at this pathway where there were these two pathways and one of them was like bright and shiny and all these theater people and it was like the theater path the other one was like these very stoic medical doctors standing and it was like choose a path it was this cartoon I'd drawn during one of my pre-med classes that I sent to my teacher but like the two paths in my mind at the end of the pre-med path was like a secure family and a household and just security and on the on the on the right side I put like a homeless person sitting by the side of the road and like like someone standing all alone and and I think I just had these all these terrible terrible ideas in my brain about what it meant to be an artist and and even just kind of all, all like I I thought that I was gonna um I just thought it was super super unpredictable but I also just really wanted to fit in and so um my my family luckily was was there uh throughout this whole crisis and it wasn't until my junior year that I switched back out of pre-med into um back into uh back into what I truly wanted to do and I was very lucky to have them there to support me throughout all of that let's talk about the self-expectation a little bit Julia because I, I find that fascinating and I and I know that we you know, one of my least favorite words in the English language is should, because I think that is the the root cause of so much terrible decision making and so much self-caused pain, emotional pain in many cases, because we decide big, important things in life, sometimes based on not what we want, not what other people want, but worse yet, what we think other people want <laughs> of us, right? Totally. And it's, I'm, I'm going to Harvard. So what do, what does the world expect of a Harvard grad to do? <laughs> What does the world expect of a daughter or son of a doctor to be? And, you know, right. it, it starts with little things, right? We are taught to dress a certain way when we're going to certain places. We are taught not to say certain things or especially in the Korean culture, there's a lot of, you know, yay and other sort of, you know, chondemal or um, <laughs> how you talk to different levels in society and age. And so there's a lot of rules. And at some point we internalize these rules and we say, we don't prioritize us, our own desires, but we say, hey, I'm going to do this because I think that's what the world expects of me. Take us through that because I, I think you, it's the other way around for most people. And it's, <laughs> yeah. I don't want to say that again, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, projecting what it should be, right, but right. How, how did you go through that? And you know, how do you view and then how are you sort of now 
as you're graduating and going headfirst into the thing that you love doing and that you're so great at, how are you thinking about protecting yourself or hedging yourself against even further self thought of totally. confusion and, and you know terrible decision making as I'd call it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, so so it all began kind of it stemmed from these two main insecurities. The first one I think was fitting in with the Asian kids on campus and the second one was the unpredictability of going into the arts. And those were the two things that scared me so much that I was so afraid of being a weirdo and I was so afraid of of having an unpredictable future that I ran away into pre-med. <laughs> and I was I was pre-med for those the, those two years, but during that entire time, I always I kept finding myself back in the theater. I was I still continued to write musicals and going into sophomore year, I I co-founded an organization with my friend called the Asian Student Arts Project, also known as ASAP. And we, and over that summer, I co-wrote a musical called The East Side. Um, and it was an Asian American uh, centered comedy one act musical. Um, and I, my whole goal was to kind of do these things to get other students involved um, and to get other Asian students involved. Because we has, we sort of had this idea of like, is it a lack of interest or talent or passion about the arts or is it just a lack of opportunity? And I think it was really just a lack of opportunity, as we saw, because we ended up putting up that show. We had the most auditions out of any show that season, and it was all first-timers. It was all students who said, we asked them, we said, how did you find out about the show? And they said, oh, well, I saw it on the email list. I saw the flyer. And I said, like, oh, well, I've never auditioned for any sort of theater thing before, but because this is specifically for Asian Americans, I and it was a comedy and looked fun, I, I thought, why not give it a shot? And so we got all these students, and, and um, during my whole sophomore year, I was rec recruiting people people for the club and for to be on the staff of the show and we ended up creating this club full um up to like hundreds of people who were all first timers just trying the arts out for the first time or people who did it as a hobby weren't necessarily interested in doing it as a career but wanted to, were looking for that community on campus and what we found was that there's so many incredibly talented and passionate individuals that are interested in the arts but had just either not had that community or not had the opportunity to be able to explore those those passions and those talents. And so through that experience, um, after we put on the East Side, it ended up selling out um, all, it, we sold out all five shows to, um, to, to audiences on campus, but people even from off campus came to see the show. And since then, we've been putting on musicals and plays with ASAP every semester since, since we founded the club. Um, and what I found was that because my two biggest insecurities, well, so that, that kind of tackled the first one, which was this idea of not fitting in because I felt like I didn't have a community. Um, my friend and I just went and we made our own community um, for all these people who also maybe felt that way, who also didn't have. So it's like we didn't have this world. So we just kind of built our own together. And then. On the other side of things, with the with the with the career concerns, um, after I wrote the East Side, the uh, executive producer of the American Repertory Theater, which is the theater that produced Six and Jagged Little Pill and Waitress and some of these big Broadway name musicals, um, she came and saw the East Side, and then from there she invited me to write a musical for them for their family show. That was Thumbelina, a little musical. And that was my professional debut, and then they invited me again the next year to write Jack and the Beanstalk. Once I had those two on my resume, then I started getting hired for other other gigs and to write other things and better building a better understanding of what it means to write a professional musical and 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 so from there, then I started seeing. Well, of course, I I don't have a super solid vision of what my career is gonna be, but at least it sort of 
is pointing in the direction of maybe this is possible. And and Diane especially, just re- Diane Borger is, is her name of the um, American Repertory Theater. She really just encouraged me um, and said, you know, you you can ha- you can and will have a career in this if you want to. Um, and, and that really encouraged me. And then also going into the junior summer, I interned for Min Jin Lee, who is uh, the Korean author. And I remember asking her on this. We were walking home from some kind of event. I don't really remember. But I asked her, I said, um, I'm really just afraid of being a weirdo. I'm just afraid of not fitting in um, to the other Korean girls on campus and she said look at me she was like julia look at me do you think i fit in do you think i'm do you think i'm you think i'm anything like any of the other korean ladies my age no i'm different and i love it and i remember she said that to me and that really that conversation really stuck with me um and i remember at the time being like oh my gosh i never want to be seen as an artist i don't want to be seen as different but so much i think has changed in the last couple of years of me realizing I, I, I've kind of gotten to that point of, wow, I really do like being an artist. I, I do like having my own story and, and it's okay that I don't necessarily, I'm not exactly like everybody else because no one is exactly like everybody else. And then, so kind of all of these different events came together that sort of helped me find my way through those concerns that I had. And, and that's, that's sort of how I ended up ultimately making that switch over, um, and realizing that, you know, it's totally okay to be different because everybody's different. <laughs> I thank you for all of that. And I'm so glad that you had the right people in your life at the right times to help you. Oftentimes, we, we need other people to see in us what we fail to see. And I think that also going back to sort of expectations is clouded by the expectations that we have of ourselves, which leads to either self-doubt or imposter syndrome or we just simply talk ourselves out of it. And I think it's fair, right? It's uh, if it hasn't been done, if you don't see a lot of people who look like you who have done it, there's this great fear of fear, fear of fear itself of failing of um, even though nobody really cares of, of, you know, proving somebody else right. You know, maybe I should have become a doctor. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's hard, but I am glad, so glad that you did that. And I think we live at a time and for your generation in school now, I'd say even the opportunities are greater to Create the damn things that you wish you existed. One, the technical tools are there to make it so easy. The internet, obviously, and all the tools that accompany it. And two, I think that we are uh, socially and just culturally in such a better place to encourage people to pursue these things. Because if you think about the way that, you know, your father and my father chose medicine, it was based on the recommendations of their fathers or their parents or grandparents. Post-war, that was the only sensible way to build yourself a career and get out of whatever terrible situation that all of our families were suffering post-war. And so it was a lack of choice and sort of a surety thing to say like, hey, if you go that way, that's the way it's going to be. But now, because of that generation's sacrifice, we should be able to move forward in a different direction. So that is super awesome. How do your parents feel about you where you're in life now? You. (laughs) Do they understand everything? Like, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so one of the great things about like having a being 2.5 generation is that 
I, I think I have so much in common with my parents a lot more than I think a lot of my friends um, who are second generation, first generation. It's it's it, there's like nothing that I can't feel like I can't talk about or explain with my parents. Um, I remember trying to kind of explain what was happening to my grandma and my broken Korean. And I don't, I don't know if she really got it, but she was really excited, too. Um, but my parents have really kind of been there every step of the way with me because I was actually home for winter break when it um, when when I happened to go viral. Um, they, they were actually like on that walk. We were on a walk when we saw the TikTok notifications beginning to pour in. And so they've truly been there since step one. Um, and every time anything, any new excitement, uh, development happens, I'm immediately, I just call my mom, um. So it's been really fun to be able to to go on this journey kind of as a family and and being able to update them on everything. It's it's really exciting. The video that went viral obviously wasn't the first one you created. Take us through the process of creating these videos regularly <laughs> for your own self-expression. Were you using strategy and thinking that you wanted this to get picked up because I, I think it's fair to talk about these things right I think yeah, there's yeah you know I mean totally. I, I produce a podcast and yes I want authentic stories to be shared but there are things where you're like man you know like it would really make it easier for me to do what <laughs> I do if more people listened and perhaps I got more you know financial opportunities to help me do this on a regular basis and as people in the creative field I think we should normalize talking about opportunity and finances and money because if we don't, then we continue to perpetuate the starving artist stereotype, which is so toxic right. for a million different reasons. But <laughs> tell us about Julia's TikTok journey and how did you yeah. make the virality? How did you manifest it? Let's use, use that absolutely. word. Absolutely. I think I've been manifesting this for a longer time than people, some most people know. So when I first... Um, during It all kind of started during the pandemic. So during 2020, summer 2020, um, everyone was downloading TikTok. And so I also downloaded TikTok watched a bunch of TikToks for two or three weeks. And then I said, I'm wasting way too much time on this app. And I deleted it. Um, and and then in June 2020, um, still had TikTok deleted. I got the idea for Shimchung, the musical. And I started writing it. And I wrote the, um, the entire treatment for the story. I wrote like a scene by scene, everything that was going to happen. I was so excited about it. And then I sat down and I wrote the very first song. And then I remembered that night, that I had seen a couple weeks before, before I had deleted TikTok, I had seen this video where these girls were describing a movie that they were directing. They said like, oh, we're directing this film and it's all female driven. And if you're interested in this project and watching us make this journey, come follow us. Um, and then I remember seeing that video was one post and the video had like a million views and like they had like tons and tons of followers. And I was like, wow, that's incredible that they're actually really kickstarting their project on TikTok. Anyway, that was a long time before I had, um, uh, and then I had deleted TikTok and then I wrote this first song. And then that night after I wrote the first song, it was called I'm Coming Home. And I was lying awake in bed and I could not fall asleep because I had this idea that I was going to post the song on TikTok and I was going to do that same thing where I said, hi, TikTok, I'm creating a Korean Disney type princess. And I can do like, this is my, this is what my song sounds like. And, and I was going to tell everybody about it. And I took out my notes and I wrote I wrote down a script for the TikTok that I was going to post. And then I went into Logic Pro and I orchestrated a one minute clip from the song that I had just written that I was going to share on TikTok. And then I went to bed because I could finally sleep after I got all of that out. <laughs> and then I woke up the next morning and I decided that I wasn't going to post about the project on TikTok until I'd finished the entire musical because I 
realized that I didn't want to have this outside kind of external pressure to create and to change what I was creating. So that was in June 2020. And then over the course of the next year and a half, I continued to work on Shimchung. And I actually hit such a low point in the process that I went back and I deleted the original note that I had written to myself about posting on TikTok. And I said, I'm never going to show this musical to anybody. Um, this musical is like the proof that I'm a fraud. I'm a fake Korean. I'm never, it's never going to go anywhere. I had such, such a low point. And that was in like November, 2021. And then I went home for winter break, January, 2022. And um, actually, four days before winter break, or four days before January 1st, before the new year, I woke up one morning and I was like, I figured it out. I figured out how I'm going to fix the story. I figured out what Shimcheng's greatest fear is never belonging because that's my greatest fear. And she's going to have to face that fear in order to, to, to go forward. And that's what I need to do. And that's what the opening number of the musical is going to be about. And then that's what all the other characters are about. And then everything started falling into place. So then I like sat in bed for like two hours, figuring out the whole plot of the musical. Then I sat up and I went to my laptop and I rewrote the entire story. And I, and I spent the next four, four days, um, just writing the whole story. And at 1130 PM, right before the new year, I finished an entire draft, like a completely new script of Shimcheng, which is actually the closest to, to what it is now. Um, and, and then over the course of the next four days after that, I just sat in my room and recorded demos and orchestrated and arranged and did all these recordings, rewrote. And, and, and then on January 7th, I remembered my TikTok plan from 2020. <laughs> this is now in 2022. And I texted my friend, um, and I actually have the screenshots of those texts on, on my current TikTok. But I texted my friend, and I said, I think I'm going to try to go viral on TikTok with Jim Chung and hope uh, somebody at Disney sees it. And so I made some prototypes and I sent them to three different friends. And I said, what do you guys think of these videos? And they were like, post them, post them. So on Friday night, I posted the first video. That was Dive. Um, or, or so on Friday night, I downloaded TikTok and then I posted Dive. And then I downloaded TikTok on my parents' phones and I followed myself. So at that point, I had 12 followers, 10 of which were my friends and two of which were my parents <laughs> on my parents' phones. And then I went to bed. Woke up the next morning, saw that it only had like 200 views. I was like, okay, that's reasonable. Um, posted them on my Instagram as well. Uh, and then um, posted my second video and then went for a walk with my family. And while we were on that walk, my mom was like, so how does this TikTok thing work? And I said, oh, well, basically you can see I have 12 followers and like there's this algorithm. And so it'll show your videos to other people that like the same stuff. And like, if they like those videos, it'll show it to more people. So you can see my video has 300 views. And then I was like, wait a second, now it has 400 views. And then as I was like, I said, wait, now it has 600 views. And as we were going on this walk, the views just started doubling and doubling and doubling. And by the end of the day, I don't know how many views it had, but it had, I had 10,000 followers by Saturday night. And it was just this crazy, and it was like totally happened overnight. And suddenly I was getting all these emails and people were finding me on all different, all different platforms and, and Instagram requests and, and just all different kinds of things. And someone had written an article about it and, um, and then it just kind of snowballed from there. And so I think for the first like two, three weeks, I was posting consistently every single day. And then now it's kind of down to like, I'm posting once or twice a week, but um, but, but yeah, it's, it's, it was like this crazy thing that was like, I had manifested it for a year, for two years in advance. And then finally, when I posted it, it was like that, that 24 hours, it was just suddenly 
went from 12 to 10,000 followers. It's crazy. People often see these viral videos and think that it's luck. It's, <laughs> it's the algorithm lightning strike or some sort of, you know, that virality sometimes is just simply a phenomenon. But you just shared with us, this was like 18 months in the making and you went through <laughs> a hell of a lot. What do you think sparked the the Saturday afternoon life-changing burst of attention? Yeah, it's it's really interesting because I think what what happened was Dive is the song that went viral. But what sparked Dive to go viral was that the second video actually went viral and it was the song, I think. And the second one, the second um song is is not as catchy or memorable as Dive, but that was the one that people started to like first. And and I think what was interesting is I I think it really comes down to sort of the concept, the story. People, I think it finally started reaching the community and the other Koreans that said, wow, this this really does need to exist. And and to be able to see it, I think what was so lucky is that that Snapchat filter made, made it so that I could envision what this Korean Disney princess would look like. And I had my handbook at home and I, I did my little costume change and put on that filter. And I think just being able to visualize that and see this is what it could be I think that's what people were really interested in is the fact that they could they could hear the song, they could see what it might look like, and they realized that, oh, we really need this. And so I think that's what that's kind of what caught on. Again, I think this is just the perfect story of right place, right time, and the totally. emphasis on time, right? Because without the technology, it's hard for many people to one hear of it, but two also visualize it, right? Because we could simply say, and, you know, Julia and Jerry can talk about, hey, you know what would be really great is if a TV show about blah, right? Like, or, you know, what if there was a TV show where a family was wearing humbooks and like, yada, yada, yada. We would have then have to deal with a million different people's imagination of what that visualization might look like. But you were able to show that to them and saying, look, this is, just draw this. I'm telling you what to do. <laughs> it's not that hard. And right. I think the the thing that really, hit home for me is guys meaning disney like <laughs> it's here like she's done the work and at this point if you don't do it it says something about your belief in our stories mattering much right. more so than we just don't know because i think that's been the excuse of right, hollywood right. for exactly. such a long time we just don't know enough like dude it's right here it's already written just take it and run with it and I, I have to ask you how much and feel free to be super honest or uh, give give a good answer. But because I think it, for me, it's the same, right? Because I primarily do this to share Asian American stories, but I objectively believe I am one of the best people out there to do this because of my experiences, my network and my ability to, I've been told, ask really good questions. So I'm OK with saying, yes, we need the Asian Americans, but I have to do it. So for you, what was that balance like that your desire to see a Korean princess wearing a hanbok on the TVs or on the big screen versus, but my version should be the one that should be made. Take us through that process. Totally, totally. So it's always, always been my dream to write for Disney. It's always been my dream to write the Korean Disney princess. And that being said, I, I wholeheartedly believe in like uplifting Asian voices um, that are telling stories that I love. 
And so for me, because I'd been sitting around for a really long time and I still hadn't seen kind of anyone, anyone doing making the Korean Disney princess, I was like, okay, well, I guess I'll do it then. And, and I think once, once I did try to start writing this musical and once I had the musical and I had the idea and I had all the songs, I figured like, well, I've done this. So, so why not share it? Cause who knows who might see it. And I think a big motivation in that was, was kind of just basically what you just said. I think the excuse a lot of the time is, oh, we don't have the talent. We don't know who the person is. We don't have the story. And so to say like, a lot of it was just me saying like, hello world, I'm I'm here. This is the kind of art that I like to make. This, these are the kind of songs that I can do. And this is the kind of story that I envision. And so just telling them like, you know, if there's someone you need, I'm right here. Um, and I, you know, I'm sure there's tons of incredibly talented Korean musicians all over the place. Um, and it was just honestly just a matter of, of getting our voices out there. And so I think for me, like any, any sort of Korean Disney story, of course, 100 that I would love to be involved in. And I think that was really the motivator behind, behind posting was to show people that I exist <laughs> and that I'm here. And I think also in terms of time, Julia, it's, you know, I grew up in largely Korean American communities, whether it was in Fullerton here or in, in New York City, where what I consider to be the golden era of K-pop, please don't DM me, uh, <laughs> late, late 90s K-pop was the best ever. You know, we were sort of the cool kids, right? We weren't like broadly accept or, you know, the Korean culture wave hadn't come yet, but at least it was, you know, cool to be Korean. And now it's like that times a million. <laughs> the the desire to consume Korean content is, I want to say it, an all-time high, but we're not peaking yet. Totally. And so yeah. how do you think that played into this going viral and this being something that people wanted outside of our community? So difference between us wanting to be seen and then us wanting other people to see us in that regard. Well, I think it kind of goes hand in hand because in thanks to this Korean wave, um, there's been such a rise in interest in Korean media, Korean stories. But I think even still, still within the Korean American community, something that I felt was that while while I really, really love K-dramas and K-pop and I really appreciate those, I still feel like they don't quite tell my story because I grew up not not hearing any Koreans, you know, K Korean. I didn't, I didn't grow up with K-pop. I didn't really grow up immersed in that culture. And K-dramas K don't tell my story any more than uh, Friends or How I Met Your Mother tells my story. And so I think there was, there's still, even within the Korean American community, was that still that aspiration of like, okay, what is the Korean American story that really does tell my story and that shares my culture, but also tells a story that I really, really resonate with. Um, and then outside of that, I think um, one one of the things about Disney is that it's just so accessible. It's anybody can anyone who people who haven't seen a musical have seen a Disney musical, and everybody knows Disney. Everybody knows what they're about, and and has most people have really fond memories of 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 that as a um, as an entity. And so I think that like posting something particularly about both Korean culture and Disney that intersection has such a wide fan base. And, um, and so I think that that sort of definitely plays a role in why people are really interested in that, because it's, it's something that anyone can conceive, anyone can imagine if you've seen Disney movies, um, and you know a lot about Korean culture, you've, or you've heard a lot about K-pop and the Korean wave, um, I think kind of anyone can see why does something like a K Korean Disney collaboration could be really just awesome. You bring up a, such an interesting point, because I've had debates with friends on does 
Squid Games being number one in the world improve our ability to tell stories? Or are we interchangeable? Therefore, Netflix will just go buy actual Korean content and check their diversity box. And we don't still, we get less fewer chances because what roles or what opportunities should have gone to Asian Americans are now being imported directly from Asia. And the average person, unfortunately, doesn't know the difference or cares. And so I think that's fascinating because we hope that the greater appetite for seeing us on a screen uh, is there, but it doesn't really, does BTS improve the next Korean American singer to get her chance? I don't know, you know, because it's, and, and, and the way that those things from Korea specifically get made and the culture of entertainment is so different and, and the process of almost being anointed or groomed or manufactured to become popular as, as many people have known for a long time in our cases or starting to learn that the K-pop industry is actually just an industry. So what's happened since the video and, and more recently in the last you know month or so as this becomes a reality, as you mentioned earlier, you are going to be a proud college graduate from Harvard in just <laughs> a few short weeks. What is happening now to help you prepare to take this into reality and what you now proudly get to call your actual day job? Well, I've turned in my senior thesis, <laughs> which was Shim Chung. Um, so I turned in my senior thesis. <laughs> and um, since then, I've been really lucky to to uh, have gotten an agent, um, an incredible agent named Kevin and um, the whole team um, at CAA, who's really been helping me navigate this this craziness. That's kind of all these um, different different opportunities and things that have come my way since um, since January. Um, there's some really exciting developments that I don't think I'm allowed to talk about now, but maybe in a maybe in a month or two, um, we will be able to say a little bit more about. But basically, the next steps for me are going to be moving to New York City and continuing to develop Shimcheng um, in in the these in various forms and and maybe working on some other commissions i've gotten the really great opportunity to be able to work with other tiktok artists and um even do like i did a tiktok ad for something and got like got to make a little bit of money off of tiktok which was funny um meeting all different kinds of people through interviews and and collaborations and um all sorts of different things so there's been yeah a lot of really exciting developments I'm curious. I, I think I know what the answer is when it comes to sort of your, your parents, but how have other extended family, including your grandmother and, you know, people who might be a little bit more in tune with the Korean side of their culture and identity, uh, how have they responded to all of this? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's been so fun because I've had a lot of friends actually telling me like, oh, my my mom saw this in in like the Joseon newspaper or like, or, or, or on JTBC, they were watching the, they saw your interview and it's just, it's so cra crazy to realize that this is a story that's now it's reaching people far beyond what I ever, who I ever thought would see it. And I remember even like my, my boyfriend's sister actually found it on her Twitter feed and she was in Korea at the time. And so it was just like this crazy, like, it suddenly was going viral, not only in America, but also in Korea. And then to hear that people in Korea were really rooting for it too. And, or my friends who had immigrant parents who lived in the States or Korean, who were also hearing about the story and really rooting for it. It's just, it was so, it's, it's been really, really heartwarming and gratifying and just, um, just such a, such a wonderful, I think, way to, 
to enter the world, leaving college now, realizing like my Korean identity and all these experiences that I've had that were really made me shameful that I wasn't Korean enough or that I was too Korean before I even came to college. Like all of these things were worth it because they are ultimately bringing the community together. Um, And so it's, it's just been, it's been crazy and it's very surprising um, to see how many people are um, of all different kinds of backgrounds are excited about the story. I have to say thank you because I, I think it's made me as a 38 year old dude, just so proud. And when you wrote back, when I first messaged you, I was so happy because I, I, I don't know. I, I want to say I know, but I, I don't know what impact this is going to have on my daughter, Charlotte, who's three now and, and her entire generation. You know, we like to make a big deal out of all these firsts that are happening, right? What's even cooler than that is for this to be a non, non-issue, non right? Right, that right. Totally. I get so excited when I go to a bookstore, children's store, and I see on the spine a name that's, you know, nice and short like ours. And like, there is another book that's written by a Korean American or Asian American right. author. And I don't care what the book's about. I'm going to buy it because totally. one, there's support and there's two representation. But I want to get to a point where like we walk through Barnes and Noble or whatever, and like we're everywhere, and that exactly. And I want my dad, I want my kids to look at me and go, "Papa, what's the big deal? This is normal, <laughs> right? Right, right." And and it's because of people like you who let let's I think for all of us, like those of us who have had the opportunities based on our privileges of varying degrees to take the leaps of faith to pursue a podcast, a playwriting career for Minjin, like people celebrate her now, but when she was writing her first books, I'm sure they weren't so supportive of her then, right? And like so many people who, again, to varying degrees of our own privileges and the opportunities that we have through our networks to be able to uh, redefine and continue to redefine what Korean American means and what life can mean in terms of both expressing our creative endeavors, but also to make this a career. Because for this to work, for you to actually inspire the next generation, Julia, you got to make a ton of money doing this. You have to, right? And you will, but you have to because there are people who will judge you based on how successful you are financially. Otherwise, they'll always tell their kids, you know, it was good that she had that spark and she actually got it. But, yeah, you know, it wasn't that great. And so if you really want to make a lot of money, you still should go to law school, you know, medical school. And not that there's anything wrong with it, obviously, right? We have people who do those things in our family, but I wonder how many of those people wish they were doing something else and and looking at it in reverse, like, man, I wish I had Julia's confidence or her audacity to do something about it. And so on on behalf of Korean girl dads everywhere, uh, (laughs) we, we collectively thank you for doing this because it's cool, you know, like it's, it is really cool. You know, my, my kids are five and three. And so anytime there's a new Asian American cartoon, anything, right? I make him sit down and we watch it, right? And, you know, at times Jacob will be like, why are we watching this? And I was like, not for you, dude, it's for me. (laughs) We we need to see this because I I wonder how life would have been. Life is okay for me and for all of my people, but I would just wonder how, not better, but how different we could have turned out and the things that we would have pursued had we had proper and nuanced visual and actual representation in our lives. And, and I think I said this to you last time, but it is actually even more important for you to own the fact that 
you did this coming out of Harvard because it shows to the world that you can do both, that you can get there on merit and come out pursuing your life's calling and that you somehow don't have to be a high school dropout to go draw on a side of a building to call yourself an artist or to, you know, I guess the today's version of that is open up Photoshop and make a bunch of NFT things, right? Like <laughs> there's, 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 you know, power in that because as much as I think sometimes we sort of push back against this narrative of traditional merit or traditional markers of success, it still is important. And the fact that you went there, people will listen to you more. People will open their offices to you. They're, you know, different uh, into their circles. And, and that's important. And so how, how amazing in, in this year that's been so continuing to be challenging for us that we get to celebrate you. When, can you, you said you can't talk about some stuff, but I think the next question that everybody has after they have or they are seeing your videos now is, when do we get to publicly consume some of this goodness? Can you, can you give us a broad window of when that might be? Yeah, I mean, hopefully very soon. Um, it's surprising actually how how the timelines for how long it takes to, to make some certain things um, <laughs> that came, came as a surprise to me as well. But but hopefully we'll be able to learn more more quite soon and, and then beyond that, be able to see things. Um, Right now, I've been a little bit stingy on my Instagram and TikTok about sharing too much material, but hopefully it'll become public quite soon. Awesome. You can count on me being there. Uh, (laughs) I'm here in LA, but it'll probably be in New York. So whenever that is, Julia, we'll be there to support you and to uh, make sure that this becomes a thing that you can do for the rest of your life. Because I think one of the things that is really important for for me, and I, I try to share with as many people is stuff like this has to get validated within the community before we have the audacity to scream that other people should support it. And while that may not be ideal, we have to. And, you know, we need to be more mindful of where we spend our attention and our money, even if it isn't the best or the most popular or, you know, what's cool and trending, porting our friends who are entrepreneurs of all sorts, whether creative or product, or service-based business to give them a chance to support them. Tactically, no better honor, I think, or no better form of support than to physically put money into somebody's pocket and saying, I want you to use this to do that more. And so you have a world of support as uh, we were, were talking, Julie. I've, I've been thinking of different ways that we can uh, continue to uplift you and, and connect you to people that might be able to help you further in your journey. And so I, first of all, want to say thank you to congratulations for both making this a reality, even though it took 18 months of brain fog and just <laughs> a lot of internal self-doubt and congratulations for graduating um, and what I can only imagine to be a once in a century experience of going to college through a pandemic um, and for you to come out of this uh, with something that is so unique and so needed in, in our world and hopefully to uh, contribute to the education of our history and our culture and the healing of it all. As we wrap, one final thought for you or question for you is to share any bits of advice or inspiration or motivation to our audience and then in particular to our our daughters and our nieces of the world who uh, undoubtedly look up to you. I I don't want to put this entire mountain of burden of you are the (laughs) voice of the next generation of Asian Korean American woman, but you've sort of assumed that role 
of, of being a voice, an actual voice for them. So uh, share with us any thoughts you have with our audience by helping us uh, close out the show, uh, completing the letter, Dear Asian Americans. Dear Asian Americans, thank you, first of all. Um, and and mostly, if there's, if there's a story or an idea or project that you have in mind, don't be afraid to just just do it. You don't have to ask permission and you don't have to even have an audience. Sometimes just telling the story is the most important thing. But if you have an idea, why not go for it? Because you never know what could happen. And you'd be surprised, I will add, the amount of people who will do amazing things that you could not even imagine to help you make it a reality. More than ever, I think people are continuing to be reminded that we're in this together, as cliche as that may sound, and we need to support the next generation of people who are going to make us proud. And so, Julia, thanks again. Yeah, thank you so much. Obviously, the big emphasis on again. (laughs) I actually don't remember quite well what we talked about the first time. I think we hit (laughs) on most of it. I, I may have gotten more emotional the first time. I think I did choke up quite a bit. And so <laughs> while, while we didn't re- reenact that, um, <laughs> the fact that you exist and the fact that your project exists now uh, will mean the world so much for my daughter and for us, my wife and I, um, as we continue on our task, this impossible task of how the hell do we re- raise Korean American children today? What sort of influences do we want them to have? Where do we want to raise them? How much of their culture do they want to learn versus you know, forming their own identities. And they already have so many mixed race friends whose Korean identities are so different for them. And how does this all play? And, um, but we won't have the excuse that they don't have the opportunities to see themselves in books, in movies and in TV screens, thanks to people like you. And so again, enjoy the last few weeks of college. Obviously that those are fun years. You're never going to get back. Best of luck in New York. Looking forward to meeting you in person soon. And uh, most importantly, Uh, cheering you on uh, both from the audience and from afar as you uh, continue to share our stories and to change the world, Julia. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thanks so much to Julia for making time for this interview. I learned a lot um, from from speaking with her and I'm inspired to watch her grow. I'm excited to see what she cooks up next. If you want to find ways to support her, you can follow her at Julia Ryu. That's Julia R-I-E-W on Instagram, same on TikTok. It's juliareview.com if you want to learn more about her from her webpage and find out ways to support her in her work. And so again, thank you so much for joining us today as we continue to share Asian American stories from all walks of life. And so uh, come back next time. We're going to have some amazing stories. We're on Tuesdays in May. We're doing stories with our uh, friends that stand with Asian Americans. Uh, We're going to be having some other special friends joining us And so thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for listening to our Asian American stories Uh, to my clients uh, who who bring me in to share our stories and my stories with you all. I am so grateful to you. And so I hope this season in May uh, with its own challenges still uh, inspires you to uh, speak up and share your own story in whatever form that may be. You can find me on Instagram at Jerry J. Wan. You can learn more about the work that I do outside of podcasting at jerrywan.com. You can find me on LinkedIn where uh, I get pretty loud and uh, would love to engage with you there. Um, if you want to email me or email the show, you can just shoot us an email at hello at dearasianamericans.com and would appreciate a review uh, rating wherever you listen to your podcast. 
Dear Asian Americans is a show of Just Like Media. This show was produced by me, Jerry, and edited by KJ Rauke. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I wish you health, safety, and happiness.